Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Bridget Todd here. Before we start things off today, I want to say thank you so much to everybody out there that's been listening to Beef, especially all of you who've left us ratings and reviews on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Our first season has just come to an end, and all that love that you've sent our way is so amazing and also lets us know that we've done the best job that we can with the show. It also helps other people find out about the show because ratings and reviews boost discoverability on podcast apps. We really want to keep doing this podcast, and we've already got some fun ideas for another season. So if you haven't already, go leave a five-star rating and write a review, or just tell your friends, coworkers, enemies, etc., because the best way that we can make more beef happen is by getting the word out. Now that all being said, even though season one just ended, we've still got a few juicy little tidbits left for you. That's the full uncut interviews with some of the guests that we've had on the show. So first up, please enjoy this beef bonus content episode featuring our full interview with Dan Savage. Dan Savage is a sex advice columnist, a podcaster, an author, and has appeared on numerous television shows. Savage Love, Dan's sex advice column first appeared in The Stranger, Seattle's Alternative Weekly in 1991. The column is now syndicated across the United States and Canada. Dan has published six books. His newest book is Savage Love from A to Z, advice on sex and relationships, dating and mating, exes and extras. In 2006, Dan launched the Savage Lovecast. It has 300,000 unique monthly downloads and 100,000 paying subscribers for the premium Magnum content. It ranks consistently in the top 10 sexuality podcasts on Apple Podcasts. In 2010, Dan and his husband, Terry Miller, founded the It Gets Better Project, which has gathered tens of thousands of videos from people all over the world, offering hope to LGBTQ kids. The book, It Gets Better, Coming Out, Overcoming Bullying, and Creating a Life Worth Living, was a New York Times bestseller. In our conversation, Dan and I talk about his experience as an advice giver, some of the best and worst words of wisdom he's ever offered, and his love of Ann Landers. Dan, it is an honor. Thank you so much for being here. What initially drew you to advice columns? Well, I, I grew up in a newspaper home. My grandfather worked for the Chicago Daily News and we got all the papers. Uh, and advice columns were such a great entree for a little kid. You sort of progressed from the comic pages uh, and then you read the advice columns. So they were the wi- window into this adult world. And I grew up reading Ann Landers in particular. We were a Sun-Times household, not a Chicago Tribune household. We were Democrats, not Republicans. And so we got the Sun-Times and the Tribune we didn't get. We got the Daily News. We got the Chicago Star. We got the um, Sun-Times. There were like five papers in Chicago when I was a kid. That's how old I am. Um, But we didn't get the trip. And so I didn't, I just didn't grow up reading Abby. She wasn't in the paper that, that we got, you know, and she was always more progressive on uh, sexuality, on, on gay people. She famously wrote like the ultimate three word response to someone who wrote to her complaining that a gay couple had moved in across the street and was destroying their property values and wanted to know what to do to improve the quality of the neighborhood. And Abby said, you could move. But when I was like 13 or 14, I found uh, in my older brother's copies of Penthouse Magazine, Xavier Hollander's advice column, uh, Ask the Madam. She wrote a memoir in the 60s called The Happy Hooker about being a sex worker. And she wrote a very explicit sex advice column uh, in Penthouse magazine. And my brothers read Penthouse for the pictures and I read Penthouse for the articles. Um, And 
I kind of fell in love with how she sort of merged Anne Lander's no nonsense approach and talking about sex. And it wasn't at that moment where I was like, ah, I want to be a sex advice columnist when I grew up. It was that when I stumbled into it, I was like, oh my God, I've been preparing for this basically all my life. Yeah. One of the things I love about your backstory is how so many of the advice columns you were reading were, you know, straight people, maybe, maybe giving not great advice to gay people. How did that shape your understanding of giving sex advice? Well, when I started the column, it was going to be a joke. You know, I was 26 years old and gay and I was going to write sex advice for straight people. And the idea was I would treat straight people with the same contempt that heterosexual advice columnists like Ann Landers had kind of always treated gay people with, you know, this, oh my God, you know, you probably broke your mother's heart. How can you do this sick and disgusting thing? You should see a therapist, but here's some advice. He's sad, pathetic, uh, hetero, right? Um, And then I started writing the column and straight people loved it. They'd never been treated like that in print before. Like gay people had kind of always been treated and it became a real advice column under my feet. I started to get real questions from people who really liked my kind of Dear Abby style, direct, sardonic advice. Uh, And yeah, I stumbled into writing an actual sex advice column, honest to God. And if you went back and read the first six months of Savage Love, you'd see it was just a joke. It was just supposed to be a joke. I was going to do it for a year, uh, maybe. And now it's 30 plus years later and I'm still doing it. You'll have to pry this advice column out of my cold, dead hands, just like they pried Ann Lander's advice column out of her cold, dead hands. Oh, so, you know, was there a point in your work where you thought this is a, like, like when did you know you were doing something serious where you had switched over from it being a joke to it being serious? Ah, oh my gosh. You know, early on, I started getting some really heartbreaking letters. Um, I was funny and people tend to trust the judgment of people who are funny in some weird way. If you know what's funny, you kind of know you have an emotion, high emotional IQ to know what's funny. You have to separate what's funny from what's not. And to be able to joke about something serious, you have to find, you know, have to have the emotional intelligence to find that sweet spot. And it kind of made people trust my judgment that I was funny about sex and relationships. And I started getting real and long and very serious questions about sex and relationships and heartbreak and um, things that were complicated and sometimes very upsetting. And I can't, I can't point to the one letter that convinced me that, oh my God, I'm doing this for real. They just started to, to come in and I started to mix the more serious questions with the lighter hearted questions and more serious columns with lighter hearted columns and uh, just kind of rolled with it. So what do you think it takes to be a good advice columnist? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do, you do this? Well, you know, when I started writing, I would get angry letters from straight people who assumed that a gay person could be as ignorant of heterosexuality as the average heterosexual was of homosexuality. You can't, as a gay person, be ignorant of heterosexuality. You're literally the product of it. And most of us are raised by heterosexuals. And most of us tried to fake being heterosexual for a while when we were closeted. So we have some idea about heterosexuality, but it always get these letters saying, what qualifications do you have And if you look up advice in the dictionary, it literally says opinion about what could or should be done. And the only qualification you need to share your opinion is someone asked for it. And so, you know, what qualifies you to give advice? What makes people ask you for it? What makes you good at it? Well, I think the only measure of whether you're good at it is if people keep asking. And I've never lacked for mail or letters or questions. So I must be at least 
passable at this advice thing after all these years. People keep, I mean, you keep doing it. People keep asking, you keep telling them. Yeah. Yeah. And literally it's the only qualification you need. Um, I always like to remind people, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. It's also not binding arbitration. It's just like one quick take, you know, outsider's perspective on the problem you might be having or the problem you might be involved in. I've heard from lots of people over the years who were reading the column and then suddenly realized the letter was about them. What is that experience like, do you think? I don't know. I've never been on the receiving end of it, <laughs> but uh, I can't imagine it's very pleasant. You know, I've gotten angry letters and emails from people whose boyfriends or usually actually girlfriends or wives I was telling to dump them who were mad at me for telling their girlfriends to dump them, but they deserved it. If I said that, they deserved it. <laughs> We mentioned before we were recording how when I would be on the Metro, everybody would be reading your column and it was definitely an institution here in D.C. Uh, what do you think makes advice columns such an important cultural institution? Well, I mean, they go back hundreds of years. They, they became really popular in the United States in the Yiddish press um, in, on the East Coast in the 19th century. And, you know, this, these were immigrants who were trying to find their way in this country. Um, and weren't familiar with the folkways of our, our, our polyglot, multicultural, multiracial society. And you read examples from those old columns, and they really are one person who got, you know, who's found their legs here, helping out somebody else who's just got here and doesn't yet have their legs. Um, and I forgot the question because I'm such a pothead. Oh, it was about like, like why are advice columns such an important cultural institution? Well, they're just, when I met the guy who was starting the paper where my column originated, we were just shooting the shit. And I said, oh, he's telling me about this paper. He's going to start with the, you know, some friends they were moving to Seattle. And I said, oh, you should have an advice column. Everybody reads those. You can't not read an advice column when you see it. You see that Q&A format and you just stop. And he said, excellent advice, write the advice column. And I wasn't angling for it. Even then I wasn't like, oh, I want to be an advice columnist. Um, there's just something about the informality, the uh, ephemeral, like in the moment nature of like somebody's having a moment, a problem, has a question, gets it answered. And it's just so immediate. And in a way, advice columns really anticipated forums, chat rooms, Reddit, blogging, like all these, all this media that was really two ways was a conversation between the writer and their audience that involved the audience. Advice columns pioneered that, um, you know, you wrote for a newspaper and there would be letters to the editor that would run days or weeks later that you didn't as the writer for whatever the you know person writing to the editor was responding to, you didn't have to engage with that person. Advice columnists, you know, took a letter from a reader, responded to it, then took letters from readers responding to their response. And it was always this conversation. And it was one of the only places in a newspaper where the readers were driving and empowered. And I think that's what's always, for a lot of people, been really uh, attractive about advice columns. It really does make the reader feel like there's this little chunk of the paper or the website or the blog or the podcast now that they're in charge of, that they're really setting the tone and direction of. And as an advice columnist, you kind of work for the reader. Um, and it's in, it's an honor. And there, there's something about a sex and relationship, and most advice columns are about sex and relationships. We read them because we want to know where we fall on the normal, not normal 
continuum, but also we read them because we anticipate that we ourselves might be in a similar circumstance someday. And advice, sex and relationship advice is sticky. You know, I hear from people all the time who read something in my column a dozen years ago and then realized they were in a very similar situation and the advice came back to them. And so we benefit from sharing our experiences, our worst moments, our stories, our problems. Um, we benefit other people. There's a, there's a kind of generosity of spirit that animates an advice column where everybody who reads um, isn't sneering at or laughing at the person who's asking the question. They're really, I think, empathizing with the person who asked the question because they're but for the grace of God go I or there go I in five or 10 years. I, I mean, what a good point. I love that bit about advice, like hearing your own advice recycled back. I've had two different partners give me advice from you about on days like your birthday or Valentine's Day, have sex first and then eat after. Don't have <laughs> a big meal and then try to do it. <laughs> we call that fuck first at Sarah's yeah. Love. Hashtag fuck first. And that came that came because I was getting so many letters on what is it? February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is not a big deal in our house, so I always screw the date. But people would write me the day after and say, Oh my God, you know, we didn't have sex on Valentine's Day. Are we doomed? And I would make inquiries and then realize, you know, they went out to dinner, they had cocoa van, they had red wine, they had chocolate mousse, they had drinks after. No one wants to fuck after cocoa van and chocolate mousse. Like fuck first, then go to like anytime there's a holy sex day of obligation, get the sex out of the way, including wedding days, anniversaries, birthdays, Valentine's Day, Arbor Day at our house. It's an important romantic holiday for us. Whatever it is, Pound it out first, then go eat. And then if you go home and you have sex again, like, oh my God, great. But if you don't, you can just like, what's better than with somebody you love after a giant meal and, you know, a fancy restaurant than just like laying on the couch, feeling full and watching TV. You don't want to go home and barf up the cocoa van into their lap trying to suck them off. <laughs> or I don't, I was raised better than that. Do you think that's the most like ubiquitous piece of advice you've ever given? Like, what do you think your best piece of advice you've ever given is? Uh, I think price of admission has saved a lot of relationships. Um, that's the idea that, you know, there's certain things about your partner that you don't like uh, that, that are the price of admission to be in the relationship. And you pay that price and you ride the ride and enjoy the ride. You don't, if you're going to go on a roller coaster pay the price of admission and then complain about how expensive the ride was the whole time. If it's not worth it, don't pay it. Don't ride the ride. But if you paid it, you know, enjoy the ride. And though that can be, you know, the trivial thing I always cite is my husband's kind of a slob and I would yell at him instead of picking up after him because I shouldn't have to pick up after him. He's an adult. And then one day I just started picking up after him and I was like, well, this is easier and he's worth it. That's a price of admission I'm willing to pay is to move through the house like an octopus, picking things up and putting them away for him. Um, and there are certain price of admission he pays to be with me. Um, and I think that's really helped people put like little annoyances into context because there are certain things about your partner you're never going to fix or solve. And you're going to have to step around if you want the relationship to survive. And I hear from people all the time that that really led to them doing away with a lot of constant conflict in the relationship that was making the relationship unenjoyable just by mutually identifying like, this is the price of mission I pay to be with you. Here's when you pay to be with me. We're not going to complain about this anymore. And that can be sexual. You know, some people are really into anal. Their partner is into anal. That may be the price of mission you have to pay to be in this relationship. That's not going to happen for you. If you want to be in this relationship, pay that price and shut up and don't complain about it and don't pressure your partner and don't be awful. 
you know that they weren't into this, pay the price. And I think that's, that's helped a lot of people. That's really also a lot of my take on monogamy, that if somebody's with you for 50 years and cheated on you once or twice, they were good at monogamy, not bad at monogamy. Um, that cheating happens. That doesn't mean the person doesn't love you and relationships are long and people are imperfect. And I don't say that, you know, I'm non-monogamous. I don't say that people should forgive an infidelity or an adultery lightly. It's still a betrayal. It has to be worked through. And that's not me saying everybody should be in a non-monogamous relationship. I say this to people who want monogamous relationships so that their monogamous relationships survive what for many is the almost inevitable infidelity. You know, we tell people, I've said this since I started writing the column, we tell people that cheating is unforgivable and the ultimate betrayal. And then people experience it that way. And we say that even though we know how common it is. And it seems to me that if cheating is that common, we shouldn't tell people it's the ultimate betrayal and is unforgivable because that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that destroys a lot of good, solid, monogamous enough relationships that ought to survive. Is there any advice that you've given that you regret? Oh yeah. Yeah. When like, asexuality sort of broke into the public consciousness when uh, ace people began to advocate for themselves. I was like, what? This isn't a thing, right? That was my first reaction. A little like Barack Obama on gay marriage, I evolved, <laughs> right? Um, it's, yeah, there's lots. Of, I put the clitoris in the wrong place the very first time I wrote about it. I was a 26-year-old gay boy and Google didn't exist, so I couldn't just quickly look it up and seem to be informed. Uh, turns out the clitoris is not on the soft palate. That's just mine. <laughs> Uh, but I literally said it was at the top of the vaginal canal. I thought it was like some joy buzzer. It's like if the dick was big enough, it hit the clitoris. Like I had no idea, right? Um, and so that was a moment when I was like, oh, I really have to do better and pay attention and listen. And I've always done that. Like in a way, I'm a little like Ann Landers in that way. She was bad on gay stuff for a very long time. But gay people kept yelling at her and talking to her and writing to her. And she moved on it and she evolved on it. And in the same way, like, you know, me on my male bisexuality, I wasn't great when I started writing the column, but I listened to the bisexual guys and bisexual people who were yelling at me and talking to me and continue to write to me and engage with me. Um, and I moved on it. You know, I came to see where I was wrong. I guess progressive values have become such a bigger thing in our society. How has that changed advice columns? Huh. I... You know, sometimes advice columns can now seem scoldy and, you know, so much of lefty progressive media can seem like an echo chamber, just like right wing reactionary fascist media can be an echo chamber. Um, progressive. I'm a progressive, right? Like I've always been a progressive and a liberal and I'm for everything. Uh, on the progressive agenda, uh, single payer healthcare, gay marriage, legalized pot, like I'm for it all. Uh, fuck the police, like I'm for it all. But like sometimes I read uh, advice columns that seem like they're picking letters just so they can, the advice columnists can point to their own sort of superior moral values or superior progressive values and not meeting people where they're at and like getting under the hood with them and trying to like make a relationship work, which is usually what the person is writing you about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you mentioned Ann Landers really having to listen and move on particular issues. 
What do you find so compelling about Ann Landers in particular? Well, I, I grew up reading her um, and I loved her voice. I loved that she could make a mistake. She used to have, she had this catchphrase like 20 lashes with a wet noodle that when she'd made a mistake and like admitted that her readers were right and she was wrong, she would sentence herself to 20 lashes with a wet noodle. And I just, I just found her relatable and she reminded me of my mother uh, who was also kind of like the Dr. Phil for the neighborhood when I was growing up. Um, My mom was, you know, my mom always joked that she did for free that then what I ended up making a living doing. And isn't that just the way the world works when it comes to sexism, women cook, women are cooks and men are chefs. Like she gave all this advice. She was like a font of wisdom, but never monetized for her. Like it was monetized for me. Um, And yeah, I, I don't know. Just like Ann Landers got in your head. You could hear her voice. She seemed like a person that you were having a conversation with which is another thing I took from her when I started Savage Love is I literally said, I want this to sound like a conversation I'm having with my friends about our sex lives after a drink in a bar, Um, which meant, and it was radical for Savage Love and for being in print 30 years ago before the internet existed. I let people use the language that they actually used when they talked about their sex lives and talked about sex in print, uh, as opposed to the kind of Sanskrit, uh, you know, archaic, uh, Latin that people had to use talking about their sex lives when they talked about them in print before, you know, I didn't make people say I performed oral sex on my partner. People could say I suck my partner off. And that was radical 30 years ago before the internet came along. And that was as weird as that might be for, you know, the, the angel of Ann Landers up in heaven to hear me say me letting people be explicit and conversational and colloquial like that was inspired by her column. Wow. And I think it it really shows in the column because you feel like you're like if you were talking to your best friend about something that happened in the bedroom, you wouldn't use all these colloquialisms and or you around it. You would just say what happened. Exactly. And there's people talk about sexual, sexually explicit slang as if it's grosser than clinical or medical terms. And it's actually not. There's a little distance there. There was somebody else who was writing advice column in the 90s who's, you know, was describing themselves performing oral sex and said, I licked my partner's penis. And that's so like, the mental image is so pornographic, more so than I sucked his dick, right? I sucked his dick. I licked, you could just see her like licking like an ice cream cone or something. Anyway, so I let people say suck dick and other people, I performed fellatio, you know? What do you think Ann Landers would say about that? <laughs> uh, I think she wouldn't have been able to sign off on it. Born in 1918 in Sioux City, Iowa. I don't think she would have signed off on it. Um, but I think if she were born later, you know, if she were my contemporary, I think she would total. I think she would be writing in a column the way I wrote my column. Yeah, I, I could see that too. And, you know, other than yourself, I think that, Ann Landers and Dear Abby are probably the kind of, when people think of advice columnists, like I feel like those are the three people think of. What do you think that made Ann Landers and Dear Abby the best to ever do it? Like, like why did they cut through the culture so much? Well, they benefited from the monoculture. They both wound up syndicated in 
probably a thousand papers all over the country and the world each, but mostly in North America. Um, it was possible then there was something about being a syndicated advice columnist that kind of, you, you had no qualifications to give advice, but the fact that you were syndicated was itself a kind of endorsement. Like all these people believed you knew what you were talking about or had a good perspective on life problems, marriage, relationships, sex. Uh, but there was a kind of a monoculture then. And it did, you know, she took off when Ann Landers took, there was another Ann Landers. There's a woman who wrote Ann Landers before Ann Landers wrote Ann Landers. And she, uh, I believe left the column or died in the Sun Times, which is where Ann Landers originated in Chicago, had to replace her. And they had a contest and uh, Epi Letterer applied and sent in some sample columns, which is how she got the job and got to be Ann Landers. And that column was already syndicated in 26 papers. And there were papers everywhere, like tiny towns had daily papers then, and they were starved for content. And Ann Landers went from being in 26 papers under the original Ann Landers to being a thousand papers uh, with uh, Epiletterer Ann Landers. Um, and there was just, so it was, it was, I think, a combo of like the quality of her advice, the quality of her voice, what she did differently with the column, which is also something that I took from Ann Landers, was Ann Landers didn't just give advice herself. She went and got experts. She brought in big guns. She reached out to people for quotes, which advice columns didn't do before Ann Landers. You didn't bring in guest experts. I always have inspired by, you know, growing up reading Ann Landers and there would be a doctor and there would be a lawyer and there would be, you know, a sociologist, a researcher weighing in someone with the credentials, the academic credentials. And I stole that from her. And I think that's what made her column seem at both you know, once conversational and friendly, but also authoritative that when she needed the voice of authority, it wasn't her. She was just like you, but she went and got that person. She had the power to go get that person because she had such reach because her column was so powerful and huge and had such uh, had such reach because it wasn't so many papers. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, knowing what we know about the relationship between Ann Landers and Dear Abby, what do you, how, how do you think that relationship impacted their work? It's funny that you can take two views on the rivalry and the fallout and the feud. In fact, they didn't speak to each other for decades and their kids don't speak to each other now. And you can say like, how dare, well, how, where did they get off giving other people advice about how to manage their relationships? You know, not just romantic, but also familial when they can't even work this out. Right. And became this hugely famous syndicated advice columnist. And then uh, her sister, uh, Epi, um, Abby, started her own rival column um, and they were in competition and they couldn't work that out. It, it, you know, all of us in our lives have problems that we can't work out. Like I said, you know, in a romantic relationship, you identify the price of admission, the thing you have to step around. Um, and that means your life ain't perfect. And that means your relationship isn't perfect. And in a kind of this weird way, like you can look at the fact that they didn't speak and they had a really high conflict, screwed up relationship and think, where do they get off giving advice? And you can also look at that and say, that makes their advice paradoxically more relatable because they're not God. They're not perfect. And they, under they understand that, you know, the readers aren't perfect either. And sometimes there's, I call them the unsolvable problems. Sometimes there's a problems that nothing can be done. And 
you have to be conscious of those too. And I think Anne and Epi were, or Anne and Abby were conscious of the unsolvable problem because they were living one. Yeah. Let's say that Anne writes you for advice. I have this rivalry with my sister. It's not working out. We're not speaking. What do you tell her? You don't have to speak to your sister. You might like to speak to your sister. You might want to work on that relationship at some point, but you don't have to work on it right now. And, you know, I always quote uh, Armistead Maupin that there's your biological family and then there's your logical family. And it's wonderful when there's a lot of overlap, when that Venn diagram is a circle, that's ideal, but it's not always. And maybe your sister isn't part of your logical family, at least right now. And if having her in your life is too stressful or creates too much conflict, or there's a problem you can't solve there, uh, don't feel obligated to solve it. And maybe it'll work itself out over time. And, you know, I, uh, I have, I have friends who, um, very messy divorce, you know, the affair with the best friend, and then the ex spouse marries the best friend. And it was 15 years before they could be in the same room together and now they have a kind of friendship. And I think they have a kind of friendship um, with, you know, they're scars, so always be scars, but they're not open wounds anymore. And they have a kind of friendship now that's possible for them because they weren't trying to force it 15 years ago. It was, there was too much pain 15 years ago. So what I would say to Anne and Epi, if they're still alive, was like, get, you know, take as much time apart as you need. Like what Epi did was kind of fucked up. Can she cop to that? What Anne did was a little selfish. Like there were obviously enough papers to share. They were both rich and famous writing their advice columns. Um, and the rivalry was in some ways good for both of them. It made their columns and that, the two of them more interesting to the reading public. So they both kind of benefited from this shit show. And it, but only in time, I think, could they acknowledge that. You know, my friend who got divorced by the person who wound up marrying their best friend is now themselves remarried, has kids, wouldn't be who they are now or with who they are now if it weren't for that. And they're happy with where they're at now, with the relationship they're in now, the kids they have now who would not exist, right? But it took time. So I guess this is a long answer. I would say to Anne and, uh, Anne and Abby, take all the time you need, but eventually you're going to be dead. Don't take all the time. Yeah, I love your point about how it made them more interesting to readers and probably give better advice because nobody gives good advice like someone who's really lived a meaty life full of ups and downs and conflicts and big issues and things like that. Like you don't want advice from someone who is, oh, my relationships are all very smooth. <laughs> advice is easy to give too and hard sometimes to take. And knowing that Ann Landers might not even take Ann Landers advice when it came to this conflict between two sisters kind of gave you permission to take or leave her advice. You know, I've had physician heal thyself moments where my husband has quoted my advice back to me because I wasn't taking it in our relationship, right? Um, and I think that there's some sort of like subconscious implicit permission based on like Ann Landers and the way she was living her life to her readers where this is my advice. It's easier said often. Advice is easier given than taken. And sometimes it takes time. You know, I hear from people who are like, I should have, you told me to break up. You told me to do this. I didn't, I should have, I ultimately did. And then, you know, regretted not taking your advice sooner. And maybe Anne felt the same way about the situation with her sister, that she should have taken some of her own advice sooner. Because they did reconcile before their deaths. 
So looking at the legacy that they've left, you know, what do you think that Anne and Epi owe, you know, or what, I guess I would ask like, what do you think advice colonists today owe to the legacy of Anne Landers and Dear Abby? Oh, everything. You know, they, they, the two of them together, and they're a fascinating story that they were twin sisters, that they had this insane made-for-TV rivalry, literally made-for-TV. I think there was a TV show once made, a TV movie about their relationship. Um, it popularized what had been a kind of niche ethnic newspaper genre. You wouldn't see, there's like a dozen advice columns in the New York Times now. There weren't any 30 years ago when I started writing Savage Love. I really think uh, the the the... the the path that they blazed led to the current kind of explosion uh, of this as a legitimate literary genre. Um, you know, Cheryl Strayed and Roxanne Gay and all of these like amazing kind of Bigfoot big name writers who write advice columns and it's not considered down market or cheesy anymore. Um, and it was considered that when Anne and Epi, Anne and Abby, I was like Esther and Epi, Anne and Abby, when they were doing it was considered a little like de classe. Uh, Anne was a little bit more sort of Midwestern kicky aunt. Uh, Abby was a little bit more sly, sardonic, urban. Um, but still, they were both kind of considered, you know, not ridiculous, just not serious. And now it's considered serious. And in a way, I think it was the combo of their columns, their presence, their lingering cultural impact, even after they both passed away. Uh, and then the cross-pollinization of that with blogs and blogging and the kind of conversations that bloggers had, that journalists began to have with their audiences that reminded people of the conversations and and uh, Abby had with their audiences. And in a way, then it kind of opened the door to people like Roxane Gay writing an advice column for the New York Times. Absolutely. And I think I keep going back to that point that you made about mm -hmm. the sort of conversational nature of media. I don't know that we would have that. I don't know that we would have this expectation that me as the reader could write in, so an expert would answer you know, other people would be like, well, here's what I think, you know, I, I think it created this conversational media culture that I'm so grateful that we have. It was the first example of it, you know, like advice columns are out there doing this, including mine, like mine existed before the internet came along. And then along came blogs and along came other forms of interactive social media and advice columns in their way were the original social media that were kind of, you know, this mutation in print journalism a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, that was just waiting for its moment to become, you know, to burst out of that kind of uh, a little Galapagos Island at the back of the newspaper and become a really much more prominent form of uh, a legitimate, perceived to be legitimate form of, uh, of journalism, really. Yeah. So Ann Landers is one of your big inspirations. How did you come to own her desk? <laughs> well, my brother let me know that uh, there's this little auction house in the west suburbs of Chicago that was auctioning off some of Ann Landers' effects. And one of them was her desk that she'd written her column at for 
40 years, 45 years in her condo on Lakeshore Drive. And I had been on um, NPR after Ann Lander's death with her daughter, Margot Howard, who was the original Dear Prudence for Slate Magazine. And they kind of brought me on thinking I would like shit all over Ann Landers in front of her daughter as if I didn't like Ann Landers because I wrote this like crazy, dangerous sex advice column. I was the radical. And I was actually, you know, very glowing. I really admired Ann Landers. I grew up in Chicago. So she was a Chicago person. I was a Chicago person. She was a presence in the city I grew up in. I knew she was a Chicago person. She'd also left the Chicago Sun-Times when Rupert Murdoch bought it in protest, which I so admired, dragged her column out of the Times and walked across the street to the Tribune. Um, and so I heard about the auction effects. And I was like, I should get her desk. I should go buy her desk uh, at this auction. And I thought if I went, I'd be bidding against the Smithsonian. I thought the Smithsonian would want it because um, it was such, she was such a huge cultural force uh, in American life in the 20th century. And I, but I didn't want it to seem disrespectful. I didn't want people to think I went to get it to like write my smutty sex advice column at Ann Lander's desk. So I wrote to Margot Howard. I got her contact info from the radio producer and wrote to her and asked for her permission. And said like, I would like to go to this auction. I would like to buy your mother's desk intending no disrespect. Just I want to keep it in the advice business. And she gave me her blessing. And I went to this auction. I thought I'd be bidding against the Smithsonian. I set an upper limit for myself of like, I think 10 grand, which is obscene. Uh, and I bought the desk for $187. You're kidding. What it was a me deal. And, I know. But it's this huge kind of Jason robarbs ask uh, all the president's men's Washington Post in the uh, 50s, 60s, giant heavy desk. Uh, and because it was so cheap, I also got uh, two of her typewriters, a whole bunch of her plaques and awards and honorary degrees. And yeah, I have a whole bunch of Ann Landers memorabilia in my house. Wow, you have a little museum to her in your home. I do, I do. What is your favorite? I mean, I didn't know the thing about Rupert Murdoch. How fucking cool. What is your favorite fact about Ann Landers? What is something about her that just endears her to you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, ultimately, I mean, that that is amazing that she in 19, I think it was 1987, she saw Rupert Murdoch for the toxic monster that he is uh, and wouldn't allow her byline to appear in a publication he owned. Um, that for me is so admirable. Um, I also think the column she wrote when her, when she got divorced, when her marriage ended uh, was incredibly moving. Um, and a, writing an advice column is really to have a kind of a personal relationship with your readers uh, sometimes you give examples from your own life, but there's always this hint that your advice is informed by your experience. And, you know, here's this woman who's telling you how to make your marriage work and she couldn't make her marriage work. And rather than try to spin that or deny it or justify it, she left half a column blank because she wanted the column to be unfinished like the marriage was. And it was just a moving, almost artistic gesture. Like you got this sense in that moment that, her column inches were her canvas and she was quite literally like leaving a blank space, like a painter in that moment. And it was, it was art, that column. Um, and it inspired me, you know, when my mother died and my mother and I were very close. And when my mother died, I thought, 
because and because of Ann Letters and the way she wrote about her marriage ending, which was a grief for her, a profound grief for her, I can write about this in this space. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next chapter podcasts.